You're listening to the Doxology and Theology Podcast, where we promote, encourage, and equip gospel-centered worship. For more information, visit us at doxologyandtheology.com. Thank you, Matt, for the invitation, for your ministry and your music. Mark Dever was the person who introduced me to Matt Boswell many years ago. He said, hey, if you, if you listen to any of the songs that Matt Boswell is writing, and he commended Matt not only for the material that he was producing for sung praise, but as a man of God, loved the Word. And then I got to uh, attend the church where Matt was leading music, where uh, Afshin Ziafat is the pastor. And now Matt has planted a congregation out of that uh, church, and I look forward to visiting there to hear you minister the Word, dear brother. And I love the exhortation of this conference, uh, this vision for worship that is Bible-filled and Bible-formed. We, we want worship that is Bible-saturated and Bible-directed. You really ought to be an aspiration for all of those of you who are here who are pastors, for all of those of you who are here serve your congregations in worship, for all of those of you who are here are members of local churches. Your desire ought to be when anybody goes away from the worship services of your congregation, one of the things that ought to be in their mind is, boy, there was a lot of Bible in that worship service. And and let me tell you, that's a sad thing because many evangelical churches suffer from a paucity of the Bible. Uh, Very often, uh, high church liturgical and traditional churches, liberal mainline Protestant churches, have more Bible in their worship services than in evangelical churches. And brothers and sisters, that should not be so. We're the Bible guys. And so the Bible ought to be in our services. Nobody ought to be able to escape the Word of God when they come to worship services that are directed by and filled with the Bible. And so tonight, it's my joy to speak on the topic of read the Word. And let me give you the subtitle for my talk. I'd rather preach to you, and I'll probably go to preaching at some point in this address, but my subtitle is this, The Historical, Biblical, and Pastoral Importance of Reading the Word of God in Public Worship. The Word of God is central to Christian worship because one way that we might define what Christian worship is, is that it is a word-mediated encounter between the congregation and the living God. Christian worship is a word-mediated encounter between the congregation and the living God. There are many answers to the question, what have you come to the worship service for? Some good answers, some not so good. Certainly one of those answers ought to be, I have come because I want to get God. I want want to be in the presence of God. I want to give him the glory due his name, and I want his favor poured out on me. How does that happen? It is a word-mediated encounter because we serve a God who is invisible. You cannot see him, 
And so how do you worship a spirit? The answer is however that spirit tells you. And the, and the place that he tells you is the Word of God. And so the only way that you can engage with the God of the Bible is how he tells you to. And he tells you to in his Word. And so my exhortation tonight is about specifically the topic of reading the Word. And I'm going to urge you for the recovery of the regular reading of God's Word in the church today. And in particular, let me go ahead and tell you what I would love to see happen. Four things. For a regular reading of a substantial amount of Scripture to reappear in every congregational worship service. For the regular reading of a substantial amount of Scripture to reappear in every congregational worship service. Secondly, for that reading to be distinct from the reading of the sermon text. So the, the, the only bit of the Word of God that is read is not simply the portion that is read before the sermon is preached. Third, for that reading to be accompanied with a brief but helpful introduction that will help the people of God understand the portion of God's Word that's being read to them. And fourth and finally, for the local church, for the local church ministry to cultivate an expectation, a longing for, and an appreciation of the significance of the public reading of the Word of God among the members of the congregation so that they will feel a personal loss if the service of worship fails to contain a substantial portion of God's Word. So I front-loaded my hopes and applications and aspirations in the message. Now let's launch into it. Um, the reading of the Word of God has been an essential component of Christian worship throughout the totality of the history of the church. The reading of the Word of God has been an essential component of Christian worship throughout the totality of the history of the church. But you don't have to look any further than Paul and the pastoral epistles of the New Testament to find an explicit directive being given to a church-planting pastor regarding the regular public reading of God's Word. If you'll turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 4, I want to direct you to 1 Timothy 4, 13. Paul says to Timothy, until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Now, it won't surprise you that Paul encouraged him to exhortation and teaching. After all, in 2 Timothy 4, he is going to exhort him, preach the Word. But here, notice he specifically says, I want you to give attention to the reading of Scripture in the congregational gathering. Not just exhortation, not just teaching, but to the reading of Scripture. 
And when Paul says that, it is nothing new. Please understand that that exhortation to Timothy is rooted in 1,450 years of the history of the people of God. And I want to just walk you through very briefly from the Old Testament to the New on the history of the reading of the Word of God as the people of God gather for worship in both the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. Now, by the way, Hughes Oliphant Old, I'm so indebted to Dr. Old, who is now gone home to be with the Lord, wrote a massive seven-volume history of the reading and preaching of the Word of God in the worship of the church, which you can get today. You can even download it and put it on your Kindle if you want it. Uh, but his, his point is to show the centrality of the Word of God, both read and preached in Christian worship. And he points out in the very first volume that this is not merely a tradition that early Christians adopted. It's rooted in the Word of God itself. And I want you to be thoroughly convinced of that. I'm not just up here to tell you what Christians have traditionally done. I'm here to encourage you to do what the Bible has called us to do. So turn with me to Exodus chapter 24. Is there material in the Bible itself which examples and commands the reading of the Word of God in the public worship of the church, the answer emphatically is yes. Long before you ever get to 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 13. The first example is at Mount Sinai. The people of God have been rescued from Egypt. They've come through the Red Sea. They've gathered at Sinai uh, in the wilderness. And God himself has spoken to them in Exodus chapter 20. And in Exodus chapter 24, we read this. Look at verse 3. Moses came and recounted to the people all the words of the Lord and the ordinances. And all the people answered with one voice, all the words which the Lord has spoken we will do. Verse 4, Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. Verse 7, then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken we will do and we will be obedient. So the public reading of the Word of God in the context of believing worship is found all the way back at Sinai. 1,450 years or so before Paul gives the exhortation of 1 Timothy 4.13. Now, before Moses dies, turn forward with me to Deuteronomy 31. Before Moses dies, before the children of Israel go into the land of promise, in his final sermon to the people of God, and that sermon is called Deuteronomy. In his final sermon, at the end of that final sermon to the people of God that Moses gave, we read Deuteronomy 31.9, so Moses wrote this law and gave it to the priests, verse 10, and Moses commanded them saying, at the end of every seven years, at the time of the remission of debts at the Feast of Booths, 
when all Israel comes to appear before the Lord your God at the place which he will choose, you shall read this law in front of all Israel in their hearing. The Pentateuch is to be read to everybody by the priests in perpetuity at least once every seven years. What will this result in? Look at verses 12 and 13. Assemble the people, the men and the women and the children to hear the whole Pentateuch and the alien who is in your town so that they may hear and learn and fear the Lord your God and be careful to observe all the, law, the words of his law. Their children who have not known will hear and learn to fear the Lord your God as long as you live on the land which you are about to cross the Jordan to possess. So we see the public reading of God's word at Sinai, and then we see the regular public reading of God's word commanded by Moses before the children of Israel go into the land. Now, the public reading of God's word was also practiced by Joshua. Turn with me to Joshua chapter 8. Joshua builds an altar to the Lord in verse 30 to, at, the, at Mount Ebal. And just as, verse 31, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the sons of Israel, as it is written in the book of the law of Moses, a, an altar of un, uncut stones was built. And then we read in verse 32, he wrote there on the stones a copy of the law of Moses, which he had written in the presence of the sons of Israel, Verse 34, then afterward he read all the words of the law, the blessing and the curse, according to all that is written in the book of the law. There was not a word of all that Moses had commanded, which Joshua did not read before all the, is, uh, the assembly of Israel with the women and the little ones and the strangers who were living among them, just like Deuteronomy 31. So we see the public reading of God's Word practiced by Joshua. Now, it is an interesting thing that we do not have another account like that in the Old Testament until Josiah. Turn with me to 2 Chronicles chapter 34. You remember the story. They're cleaning up the mess in the temple. And Hilkiah the priest discovers the Torah. How neglected must the Word of God have been in those days? He dis what do you mean you discovered the Torah? And word is brought to the king, hey, we found some scrolls. And the king says, read them to me. And when the king hears them read, he tears his clothes. He realizes we've gone after other gods. We've violated everything that God has said in his word through Moses to us. We've neglected his words. We've worshiped other gods. And so he cries out. Look at verse 21. Go inquire of the Lord from me. For great is the wrath of the Lord which is poured out on us because our fathers have not observed the word of the Lord to do all that is written in the book. And then Huldah the prophetess says, you're absolutely right. Israel is rightly under God's curse, but look at what she says in verse 26. But to the king of Judah, who sent you to the inquirer of the Lord, 
you will say to them, thus says the Lord God of Israel regarding the words which you have heard, because your heart was tender and you humbled yourself before God when you heard his words against this place and against its inhabitants, and because you humbled yourself before me and tore your clothes and wept, I have heard you. God's a forgiving God. And in response, do you remember what what Josiah does? Look at verse 30. The king went up to the house of the Lord, and all the men of Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the priests and the Levites, and all the people from the greatest to the least, and he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant which was found in the house of the Lord. The king read it aloud. And so we see the public reading of God's word revived by King Josiah when the scrolls are found in the temple. Now the next time we see it is in Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah is already imprisoned, but the word of the Lord comes to him. Jeremiah 36 verse 2, take a scroll and write on it all the words which I have spoken to you concerning Israel and concerning Judah and concerning the nations from the first day I spoke to you from the days of Josiah even to this day. And again, what's God's purpose? Perhaps the house of Judah's Judah will hear all the calamity which I plan to bring on them in order that every man will turn from his evil way and I will forgive their iniquity and their sin. So the same thing that happens in, this is God's plan. Through Jeremiah's strong preaching of God's just judgment, the people of God are to be brought to repentance and God will forgive them. But Jeremiah can't go and read this word because he's under arrest and so he sends his amanuensis Baruch And if you'll look, verse 5, Jeremiah commanded Baruch, saying, I'm restricted. I cannot go to the house of the Lord. So you go and read from the scroll which you have written at my dictation, the words of the Lord to the people in the Lord's house on a fast day, and also you shall read uh, read them to all the people of Judah who come from their cities. So isn't it interesting? Jeremiah knows that this word comes from God and therefore he commands it to be read in the temple as the word of the Lord, from the word of the Lord, through him, dictated to Baruch, who Baruch now reads to the people of God. This happens again after the exile. Turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 8. The walls of Jerusalem are being built, the city is being restored, the exiles are coming back from their captivity. And we read in Nehemiah 8, verse 1, all the people gathered as one man at the square which was in the front of the water gate, and they asked Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses which the Lord had given to Israel. Isn't it interesting? The people ask Ezra to do this. They want the Word of God. Verse 3, he read from it before the square which was in the front of the water gate from early morning unto midday in the presence of men and women, those who could understand, and all the people were attentive to the book of the law. Verse 5, Ezra opened the book in the sight of the people, for he was standing above all the people, and when he opened it, all the people stood up. That's the origin of the Anglican practice of having people stand for the reading of God's Word. Right there in Nehemiah 8, verse 5. Verse 8, 
They read from the book, from the law of God, translating it to give the sense so that they understood the reading. Verse 18, he read from the book of the law of God daily from the first day to the last day. So that's a taste of the public reading of the Word of God in the days of the Old Covenant. But we continue to see this in the days of the New Covenant. So Jesus' public ministry begins with the reading of the Word of God in synagogues, especially at his home synagogue. Turn with me to Luke chapter 4. Verse 14, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through all the surrounding district. And he began teaching in their synagogues, and he was praised by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and, listen to this closely, as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. And he read a portion of the prophet, and then you see in verse 21, he said to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus' public ministry begins with the public reading of the Word of God in the synagogue. Notice also that Paul preaches in the synagogue after the public reading of God's Word, and that is both Paul's practice and it's the normative practice of the Jewish people in that day. Look at Acts chapter 13, verse 27, where Paul, after the reading of the Scripture in the synagogue, stands up and preaches, and in the course of that preaching, he says this, for those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, recognizing neither him nor the utterances of the prophets which are read every Sabbath, fulfill these by condemning him. He's preaching Christ to them from the Old Testament, and he's saying the Scriptures are read every Sabbath in the synagogue, and they're about Jesus, but they've rejected Jesus, thus fulfilling the Scriptures. And so it's, it's clear the normal practice for the people of God when they gather is for the Word of God to be read. But some people read it, as he will say in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, with the veil of Moses over their eyes. They don't see Christ. Look at Acts chapter 15, verse 21. Luke recounts the ordinary Jewish practice of the public reading of the Word of God in the synagogues. Acts 15, 21. For Moses, from ancient generations, has in every city those who preach him since he is read in the synagogues every Sabbath. From the time of Ezra, it was the normal practice of Jewish people every Friday night every Sabbath together and hear the Word of God read in the synagogues. And that's recorded in Acts 13 and 15. Then, of course, Paul, like Jeremiah, will urge his letters to be read publicly in the churches. Look with me at Colossians chapter 4, verse 16. When this letter is read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans. And for you, for your part, read my letter that is coming from Laodicea. So Paul wants this letter read in church, just like Jeremiah wanted his letter read in the temple. And again, we see the same thing in 
1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 27. I adjure you by the Lord to have this letter read to all the brethren. So just as Jeremiah understood that what he was writing down was the word of the Lord, and so it should be read just like Moses' Torah, Paul understands that what he is writing is under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, it is the word of the Lord, and it ought to be read in the churches just like the other scriptures. And so in all of these passages, we see the practice of the people of God in Bible times in all ages that the word of God is read in their public worship. It is no wonder then when we go post-New Testament era to the early part of the second century and we look at a philosopher who converted to Christianity named Justin Martyr Who's he dies around 165, AD 165. So sometime in the first part of the second century, this is how he describes part of a Christian worship service. And on the day called Sunday, all who live in cities or in the country gather together to one place. And the memoirs of the apostles or the writings of the prophets are read as long as time permits. Then, when the reader has ceased, the overseer verbally instructs and exhorts to the imitation of these good things. That's a Christian worship service in the second century following patterns that you see in the New Testament and the Old Testament, the people of God in all ages, the reading of the Word of God in public worship is an essential component of Christian worship, not only throughout the 2,000 years of Christian history, but stretching back into New Testament times, and it's founded on a practice found in the Old Testament of the Word of God. In reading the Word of God, God speaks most directly to His people. And so this act of worship in which the verbal self-revelation of God is addressed unedited to the hearts of His gathered people ought not to be ignored. It ought not to be skipped. It ought not to be squeezed out. You ought never hear a preacher say, I don't have time to read my text today. As if we need to hurry past God's Word to get to mine. I will haunt you if I come to your church and you say that. But but not only should we never hear that, we ought to have worship services in which the formal reading of the Word of God is present lest we self-impose ourselves a famine of the Word. Wouldn't that be tragic? We have the Word of God. Would we want to self-impose a famine of it? And yet many have. The people of God need to understand how significant this is. 
Um, David Peterson has famously uh, described worship like this. Worship is engaging with God on the terms that he proposes and in the way that he alone makes possible. It's a very good definition of worship. God gives those terms in his word. And it is by his word, by his grace, and by his son that it is made possible for us to worship him. And so the word itself and the reading of the word of God ought to be understood for what it is, an enormous blessing. I had a a predecessor of mine at First Presbyterian Church in Jackson who used to say to me, Ligon, the word of God, when it is read in public worship, the people of God ought to understand this is an event. This, This is a big deal that the word of God is being read. So how ought we to read the Word of God? Well, I have 11 pieces of advice on that for you tonight. (laughs) Don't be discouraged. I'll go fast. (laughs) 11 pieces of wise biblical and pastoral counsel because they don't come from me. They come from the Westminster Assembly of Divines uh, who in their directory of worship had an entire section simply on the topic of the reading of the Word of God in public worship. So, none of this is original to me. One, the public reading of Scripture is a part, it is an element to be exact, of corporate worship. The public reading of Scripture is a part, it is an element to be exact, of corporate worship. Therefore, it is not an option. When we neglect the public reading of Scripture, we neglect an essential aspect of Christian worship, and thus our Christian worship is impoverished. The Westminster Confession of Faith says, the reading of Scriptures with godly fear, the sound preaching and conscionable hearing of the Word of God in obedience to God with understanding, faith, and reverence, The singing of psalms with grace in the heart, as also the due administration and worthy receiving of the sacraments instituted by Christ, are all parts of the ordinary religious worship of God. Note that the confession puts the reading of the Scriptures on the same order of importance as the preaching of the Word of God. So, omitting the reading of the Scriptures is on the same order as not having a sermon or omitting congregational singing. Do neither of those. Read, preach, sing, pray, administer the ordinances of the Lord as the people of God gather. The public reading of Scripture is an element of corporate worship. It's not optional. Second, The public reading of Scripture is a means of grace. The public reading of Scripture is a means of grace. It not only serves as an opportunity whereby we openly and corporately sit under the Word, acknowledging God's authority, acknowledging our dependence on on His initiative and self-revelation, acknowledging our glad surrender to the Lordship of His Word, 
but it is a God-appointed means whereby we are strengthened by and receive his favor. The Lord has designed to bless and edify his people by it. A number of years ago, a pastor friend of mine was starting a sermon series on Genesis 1 to 11. And there was an, an officer, a longtime member, and an officer in his congregation sitting under that preaching of the word. And as he began to read his text that Sunday, beginning with, in the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. That longtime member and church officer realized that he was living as if that were not true. And he was converted on the spot. A member and a church officer. And he later said, somebody was asking him, I understand you were converted under Glenn's sermon. No, actually, I was converted under the reading of the Word of God before Glenn's sermon, he said. <laughs> because it, when he read, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, this thought struck me. If that is true, I am in trouble because I am not living like that is true. And the Holy Spirit converted him in the reading of the Word of God. He doesn't remember the sermon, <laughs> but he remembers Genesis 1-1. The Word of God, the public reading of Scripture, is a means of grace. And by the way, that's, that's one of the reasons why at, we developed a practice at First Presbyterian Church to, to just use some brief phrases to emphasize the people of God what a big deal it was that they were hearing the Word of God. So we would almost always introduce the reading of the Word of God with something like, this is the Word of God. And I almost always close the reading of the Word of God with this, thus ends this reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant Word may he write its eternal truth upon all our hearts, to emphasize that this is the word of the living God. Sometimes I would say things like this, you are about to hear something that over five billion people on this earth have never heard. The word of the living God, in their own language, read to them as a means of grace in a public service of Christian worship, to just impress upon the people of God what a privilege it is to hear the Word of God. Our ancestors were burned at the stake so that we could hear this in our own language. It's a big deal. Third, the public reading of Scripture ought to be done by those responsible for the preaching of the Word. I understand that it is common practice in churches today to have congregation members do uh, the reading of the Scripture, sometimes even the reading of the Scripture before the preaching of the Word. And I understand why churches do that. It's one of, the, one of the reasons is to emphasize the congregational nature of worship. One of the reasons is to emphasize the participatory nature of worship. And often I've heard congregation members do a very good job of reading the Word of God. In fact, sometimes better than preachers that I've heard read the Word of God. Nevertheless, the reading of God's Word is a unique responsibility of the ministry. And so I want to commend the practice of the main Scripture reading in the worship service of the church being done by pastor, teacher, shepherd, elders. Why? Because the red word is not on some lower order of significance than the proclaimed word. 
But that is the inevitable message sent if the preaching is restricted to ministers and elders, but the reading of the Word is not. Listen to what the old Presbyterian order, you can just chart this off to these old stick-in-the-mud Presbyterians, and you can just shove me to the side if you want to, but let me just have my one say here. (laughs) The public reading of the Holy Scriptures is performed by the minister as God's servant. Through it, God speaks most directly to the congregation, even more directly than the sermon. The reading of Scriptures by the minister is to be distinguished from the responsive reading of certain portions of Scripture by the minister in the congregation. In the former, God addresses His people. In the latter, God's people give expression in the words of Scripture to their contrition, adoration, gratitude, and other holy sentiments. So make sure that the people of God understand this is an act of ministerial authority, this reading of this great portion of Scripture in the church. Fourth, we ought to endeavor to read all of the Scripture to God's people. We ought to endeavor to read all of the Scripture to God's people. Just as you may go into a church and have an outline of how you would like to preach through the Word of God over the course of your ministry there. Most ministers that are committed to expository Bible preaching will come up with some sort of a a schedule, and they'll want to cover the balance of the Scriptures in their preaching. That's a good practice. Let me also suggest to you, though, that you ought to do the same for the reading of Scripture. You ought to have a plan whereby you are going to cover the whole of the Scripture in your readings. Churches with lectionaries, of course, have such a plan provided for them, usually getting through the main parts of the Word of God in a period of two or three years. But those of us who are from free church traditions ought to as well have a plan to get through the New Testament and the Psalms, to get to the law, the prophets, the wisdom literature, the historical books, the gospels, the epistles, the acts, and revelations. The Reformers not only believed in sola scriptura, they believed in tota scriptura. All Scripture is given by inspiration. And the Puritans often criticized court divines who used lectionaries for failing to read consecutively through the balance of Scripture. Now, that doesn't mean that you have to start at Genesis and end at Revelation, but it does mean that you ought to find a method of reading and work to read through whole books, chapter by chapter, significant portion by significant portion. Endeavor to read all of Scripture to God's people. Fifth, read from the best available translation. Read from the best available translation and do it as an act of pastoral care for your people. Some very few of you will be very good with Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. And though it is the temptation of some seminary students to envisage themselves free translating from their Stuttgartensia and uh, from their uh, Nestle Alant uh, Greek Testament. As an act of pastoral care, read from the best available translation in the language of the people that you are reading to so that they can follow along, so that they 
that they have confidence in that translation of Scripture that they have access to. Read from the best available translation. That will mean that in many cases you will have to exercise discretion in what the main translation that is used by your congregation is. Sixth, exercise common sense in deciding how much Scripture should be read at once. If your congregation has never had a large portion of Scripture read to them in its public services, I cannot think of a better way to kill the reading of the Word than to start plowing through Numbers or Leviticus or Chronicles or Job a chapter at a time. Use discretion. Use common sense. Start with something easy. Read them Philemon. Read them Colossians. Take a gospel, maybe Mark. Break up longer chapters. Ease the people of God into the habit. Let them drink from the water fountain first, not the fire hydrant. Give them a feel for the total story of Jesus' ministry and work. You can read through Mark in less than half a year, even at a less aggressive pace, and then move on to something more challenging. Seventh, keep a balance of reading between the two Testaments. Our normal practice was that the Westminster Directory actually suggests that congregations read a chapter from the Old Testament and a chapter from the New Testament at every service distinct from the Scripture reading before the sermon. I am not so naive to think that I'm going to persuade any of you to do that. So what we tried to do was if I was in a New Testament book, we tried to, in general, be reading from the Old Testament. And if we were in the Old Testament, we tried to be reading from the New Testament. We also had a preference for the Psalms and the Gospels. We probably read from the Psalms more than any other Old Testament book. We probably read from the Gospels more than any other New Testament books. But keep a balance of reading between the two Testaments. Remember that in our day and age where the Word of God is more available to people than ever before in the history of the world, most of your people are not reading it at all. At all. At all. And that means that what they hear read on the Lord's Day in your worship service is probably all of the Word of God they are encountering in a week. Now, now yes, you want to encourage your people to study their Bibles, to memorize Scripture, to pray daily, to have family worship. Only a small portion of your people will. And that means that what you do in the services of worship is exceedingly important so that the Word of God dwells in them richly. And remember, you're up against it like your forefathers weren't. They could count on Christians being at church at least three times a week and hearing sermons and Scripture readings three times a week, Sunday morning, Sunday evening, and Wednesday night. Most of you, you got one shot. And here's the other bad news. Regular church members are coming to church about half the year now. And that means you've got 26 times a year. Your worship services better count. 
They, they better be filled with Scripture. Eighth, develop an orderly plan for reading through the Scripture. Develop an orderly plan for reading through the Scripture. The Directory of Worship of the Westminster Confession says it is requisite that all the canonical books be read over in order that the people may be better acquainted with the whole body of Scripture. Now, as I've already mentioned, you need to develop and follow a practical, rational plan for moving through the Scriptures. You may sometimes move chronologically, or you may hit the high points of the biblical story. From time to time, you may move in a, chron in a canonical order. But whatever the case is, you need to have some plan, or you won't do it. Ninth, pick up where you left off. Uh, you know, so, so that there's some expectation of the course of several months. You're, you're reading through a book and your people know where you're going. Tell them what you're going to read ahead of time so that they can read ahead of time. You might actually encourage some people to read the Word of God who aren't by what you're doing in public worship. Tenth, make regular use of exceptionally edifying portions of the Scripture like the Psalms. Uh, Jim Boyce made the practice to always be reading through the Psalms in public worship at 10th Presbyterian Church, not because some parts of Scripture are more inspired than others, but who would argue that the immediate and obvious benefits of reading Psalm 51 might escape those who are listening to the genealogy of 1 Chronicles 6? That's a harder passage to be edified by than Psalm 51. So make use of exceptionally edifying portions of the Scripture, like the Psalms. And 11th, you see I did get there, 11th, offer brief explanatory remarks about the reading, but those remarks ought not to be overlong or, or shadow the event of the reading of the Word. You want to say enough that your people can listen to the Word of God with understanding and expectancy. So let's say you're, you're introducing Psalm 51, and you might say, have you broken all the commandments? Have you been exposed as a liar, a murderer, and an adulterer? What would you pray to God? We don't have to guess. Let us hear the Word of God in Psalm 51. Thank you.